remember what we've already seen this church is totally divided over these spiritual gifts instead of being used to build the church up they're being used to tear the church down uh, instead of being used as a means to unity they become a cause of division in no other New Testament letter do we find such passage as this where God focuses so clearly on how such wonderful gifts can be used to such terrible ends and very clearly these chapters are recorded for our benefit that we wouldn't fall into the same trap that we wouldn't fall into Satan's ways of taking God-given gifts and using them to the detriment of God's people and God's service and in these verses that we've got before us this morning Paul continues uh, where we left off last time he further develops this theme this time by pointing out the difference in the lifespan in, in the duration of the spiritual gifts as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit and last time as we closed our study in the first part of verse 8 love never fails we used that or we saw that as a, uh, uh, an end to the preceding verses uh, the culmination of that if you like in the sense that uh, love is perfect and, and love um, is so much greater in its application than spiritual gifts to the degree that Paul can say love never fails so now we can also see it as the introduction to the verses that follow in the sense in the same way that it's paragraphed in the NIV at least love never fails and then on to look at love in the, term of, in the sense that it never fails in its duration love will continue for all of eternity wants to see first spiritual gifts a temporary necessity so just as we come to these verses they perhaps raise as many questions as they give answers um, particularly if we want to be faithful to the text here let's start with the temporary nature of these gifts why for example does Paul just list three gifts here he talks of prophecies, he talks of tongues and he talks of knowledge is it that they are the only three gifts that will cease that the rest will continue um, but these three will terminate is it the fact that these are the three particular gifts that they've got problems with there in Corinth and therefore Paul simply picked these three because they're the only three that are applicable to Corinth or is it that he's picked these three as a representative of all of the gifts or is there some other reason I suggest you probably it's a combination of two of those I think without question it is true that they are gifts that there are particular concerns with and problems with there in Corinth and so Paul rightly mentions those to draw the Corinthians' attention to them but I suggest they're also representative of all the gifts just as Paul then picks out three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit to balance those three or three uh, spiritual graces at least to balance those three prophecies, tongues and knowledge and what's Paul's point? that they will all cease then we've got the question in verse 10 what does he mean when he refers to when perfection comes and of course there have been many solutions proposed to that some argue that it refers to the completion of scripture that Paul's saying there that when scripture is complete when his revealed will is, is perfected when it is known then these things will pass away that once they've got the whole of recorded scripture for them they've got all that they need others have suggested it refers to the church coming to maturity when the church comes to maturity when it is perfected in that sense then these things will pass others have suggested it refers to the death of the believer when I die personally and go to heaven then these things will no longer have any place I'd suggest to you 
that probably the right answer is maybe a combination but primarily when Christ returns when perfection comes when else will I see face to face when else will I know fully even as I'm fully known except at the return of Jesus Christ in a sense at a personal level we could say well when I die the same would be true and, and, and yes but certainly for the whole of the church as God is writing this then we've got to say when Christ returns surely when Christ returns oh what a difference it will be what a prospect that I will see Christ face to face and in that case Paul's point here is as clear as it is simple isn't it all of these gifts whichever one you have whichever one you want whichever one you might be tempted to put on a pedestal, whichever one you hold in high regard, when Christ returns, it will have no longer any purpose. It will be past. Its time of usefulness will be over. Why did churches ever need prophecy? Why did they ever need teachers? Why did they ever need tongues? Why did they ever need administration? Well, clearly to make up what would otherwise be lacking in the church. The church started by a small group of believers coming together, rapidly grew, rapidly moved out into other cities, other towns, other places and yet the church was so immature and still is today, isn't it? It still lacked so much. Scripture wasn't complete when the church started. All they had was the Old Testament and a number, an ever increasing number of letters that they were treating as part of the canon of Scripture. There was still a need for prophecy in those very early days, although that was rapidly completed. We still today need administrators, we still need teachers, we still need those who will apply the words of prophecy of Scripture, those that that will speak out the apostolic teaching of Scripture and the words of prophecy, those who will preach, those who will teach, missionaries, evangelists. We still need that today because the church still would otherwise lack what it needs to function as the church. But a day is coming when all of that will be past. A day is coming when the church will be glorified. A day is coming when there will no longer be need for one to teach another. Because Christ will be there and our knowledge will be complete in him. Now these things were needed by the early church unquestionably. And as we saw last time, certainly in the biblical sense in which it uses the words, I would argue absolutely that apostles and prophecy in the biblical sense have ended. But we still apply the teaching of the apostles, we still apply the teaching of prophecy from scripture when we preach and when we evangelise and when missionaries take it overseas. In that sense, those functions still go on, although we wouldn't call those people apostles and prophets. Now Paul isn't despising those gifts here. Let's be absolutely clear on that. He doesn't anywhere here say anything like despise spiritual gifts or don't value spiritual gifts. On the contrary, as we've seen in the earlier verses, he talks about giving special honour to some of them. He talks about uh, encouraging them. He talks about Timothy of fanning into to, to life the gift that he's got. We're not to in any sense devalue them or despise them. But Paul's point here is that, but nevertheless, they are temporary. 
And our focus as Christians is not supposed to be what is on temporary, but on what is eternal, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 4.18 So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. That's the mistake the world makes, isn't it? The world focuses on what is temporary and ignores what is eternal. The Christian is called to have Christ's wisdom and not to focus on what is temporary but to focus on what is eternal. My friend, if if you're a Christian and if you are then I believe you've got a God-given gift. I believe he has given gifts to all of his children. And if you've discovered what that gift is and that's so important, isn't it? What a tragedy when a Christian goes through life never discovering the gift that God has given them or spends their whole life wishing they had some different gift and therefore neglecting the gift God has given them. It's so important that we discover what gifts God has given us and use them in his service and use them for the blessing of the church. But my friend, do you see there is a great danger that in discovering that gift and using it in God's service that we then become obsessed by it and it becomes our focus and it becomes our life and it becomes our goal in everything and suddenly the gift almost becomes our God. And that's what was happening there in the church at Corinth. And I suggest you it can happen so easily to any Christian today, whichever gift it is. There are lovely, lovely, wonderful Christians who have tremendous gifts in music and where would we be as a church without them? Can you imagine what it would be like if we didn't in our generation have people who are writing wonderful praise songs if we didn't have people who were gifted at playing instruments, if we didn't have people with lovely voices to help us in our sung praise, don't we value it so much in the church that we have these things in our generation? I hope you do. And those people who have these gifts are lovely, lovely Christians. But have you not come across some who have become so obsessed with the sung worship of God that that has become the only thing of importance? So you end up with churches where God's word is almost pushed out altogether, certainly brought down to a tiny little epilogue and nothing more than that because the whole of the service has got to be given over to the sung worship of God. And you end up with great events like uh, in Australia with Hillsong where where thousands gather together to spend days and days in sung worship of God and in truth very little else. And you look at it and you say, but the balance has gone wrong. Of course the balance has gone wrong because the gift has become more important than God and the fruit of the Spirit and growing in the knowledge of God. You can have a great gift as an evangelist. You can be on fire for the Lord. You can recognise this as the the, the tremendous driving effort of, of our life on earth to be obedient to the Great Commission but then you can go to the point of saying, but therefore I can't see the point in wasting time teaching Christians when there are many others who haven't even been saved. Let's focus on them. Let's not worry about the church. At least they're saved. And that would be wrong. You can get great teachers who can know their doctrine inside out and cross every T and dot every I, but they're not, they don't see the point in the, 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 the love and, and the care of Christians. You can see those, on the other hand, who are so focused on the love and care and it is nothing of Christ in it. 
And you look at just the charities that have grown up in our land, charities that have been formed in our land, that have been started by Christians for no other reason than to glorify Christ. And now they're nothing more than humanitarian works. In fact, we could go further and say some of them are very anti-Christian in their ethos today. And yet they were started for the glory of Christ. But the gift and the exercise of the gift and the outworking of the gift has grown out of its rightful proportion. And that has become the focus and that has become what is all important. And Christ is no longer honoured in it in any sense. Now what's Paul's antidote to these excesses and wrong focus? Simply to point out that all of these gifts, however good they are, are just a temporary necessity. My friend, if, if, if you consider yourself a great preacher, a great teacher, a great musician, a great evangelist, a great helper, a great whatever it is, praise the Lord for that gift and use that gift in any and every way you can, but never lose sight of the fact that it is nothing more than a temporary necessity. That it is not as important as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, does that mean that all of these must continue until the day of Christ's return? No, we said last time that very clearly in the biblical sense some of those have already ended. But even in the sense that they continue and we still preach the apostolic teaching, we still teach the words of prophecy out of Scripture, but even in that sense, when Christ returns, that will end. I mean, I mean, what place do you think there is going to be in glory for a preacher to stand up and preach when we've got the great shepherd of the sheep standing there? Why on earth do you think God is going to want anyone to stand up and preach a sermon when Christ is there in our midst? Do we really think that's going to happen? What, why do you think he's going to need teachers when we know as we are known in glory? Why, why do you think it's going to be a need for anyone to prophesy when we know all things. Why do you think there will be a need for tongues? Do you, do you think that when we get to glory, the sin that resulted in Babel and God having to deal with it by causing their languages to be confused, do you think in the new heavens and earth God isn't going to overturn that and put that right as long with every other sin? Do you think we're going to be going up to people and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying in glory? I don't think so. Certainly we will still be doing many of those things in glory that we're doing now in which those gifts are used. Of course we will. We'll still be helping each other. We'll still be showing mercy to each other. We'll still... Well, will we? Sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that because I suppose we won't be doing anything that deserves mercy to be shown in glory. But we'll still have a merciful spirit. And many of the things that in, in the gifts we will still be using... But it won't be the case that we need that person who's got that gift and that person who's got that gift because each of us will be glorified and each of us will have a, a glorified mind and body and we'll be able to serve God in every way that he wants us to serve him. That's what glory is all about, isn't it? So Paul's point here is as simple as this. These gifts that are dividing the church, these gifts that you're arguing and bickering about, they're just temporary. They're not going to have any place at all in the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be as God wants it to be. So how on earth are you letting them divide you now and spoil the church? 
Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone back to a favourite game that you had as a child, years and years later? You know, I don't know about you, I, I was um, in, um, it, I think it was in Ipswich a couple of years ago, and we discovered a shop where they sell all old things um, remarketed. You know, they're remarketing all these. I said, look, oh, that's the book when I was at school about my first reading book. Here we go. I don't know how that's just, Here we go, off to play out and about. I went, yeah. And, oh, no, this, this is brilliant. And you open and you think, this is pathetic, you know. <laughs> and, and, and games there that when you were five years old, you thought, this is wonderful. And, and then you find it in the attic or somewhere years and years later. You say, oh, look, my favourite game. You get out and you dust it down and, and you suddenly see, wow, did I find that so great at the time. And you did. Because it was designed for you as you were then. But as you are now, you look at it and you say, this isn't applicable to me anymore. This doesn't thrill me anymore. This this isn't my joy anymore. Because you've grown up. And Paul says, that's how it will be when we get to glory and we look back on these things that now so obsess us and so capture our minds and hearts and will cause us to get so divided and fall out over. When we get to there, we'll look back at them and say, did I ever feel like that about it? That's pathetic. As I can see that now, looking back on it, that was appropriate, it was needed, it was right then. But would I want it now? No way. No way. There's one further interesting point before we move on to the spiritual graces. And that's just in how they end. Paul lists here three gifts in particular, doesn't he? Prophecy, tongues and knowledge. And he clearly states that they'll all end. The interesting thing is, in the Greek, they don't all end in the same way. The ESV tries to render that as it translates it. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. They use the same words to translate the first and third and different words for tongues and that's trying to reflect the Greek there because the same is true in the Greek it's a very different word for knowledge and for prophecy than it is for tongues speaking of prophecy and knowledge the word used means literally abolished or destroyed something or someone and we're not told who but God has got to be hasn't it It's in the passive voice, someone or something will abolish those, will terminate them, will bring them to an end. We'll choose a time and say, they end here. Tongues uses a different word and the word simply means to desist or restrain. It's it's as though they will self-terminate. And the voice is passive, uh, is is the middle voice. It's that they will terminate themselves. And so the picture there in the Greek at least, although it doesn't convey well in the English, is that as for prophecies and knowledge, someone will set a time and at that point end them, whereas tongues will just of themselves wind up. As John MacArthur put it, it looks as though God has built into them a a self-stopping. Frank, can I ask you a very simple question? Are you so focused on what is temporary that which will or even has already died out 
that that has become the focus of your mind and your heart and your service and your life in the wrong way. That you see everything through the blinkered vision of this is the gift that to me is also important. That your whole view of the church and Christ's work around this world is skewered and distorted by it. Or see the spiritual graces. In contrast to all that Paul has said about the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts, look what he says about these faith, hope, and love. These three remain, verse 13 faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We just start by sharing a sermon I once heard preached on this, this verse. It won't take me long, the sermon didn't last about three minutes. It was simply this, that God has called us to show three things, faith, hope and love. And he says here that the greatest of these is love. So it doesn't matter if you haven't got faith, that you don't believe in Christ, and it doesn't matter if you haven't got any hope. If you love other people, that's good enough and God will accept you on that basis and on that basis you'll go to heaven. Uh, I I know you'll find it hard to believe that someone preached that. I assure you they did at a funeral service um, that I was at. Can I say categorically that is not what it's saying here? In fact, it's not even mentioned in these words in any salvational sense at all. This has nothing to do with how you're saved. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to them about where their focus is. He's writing to them about what they see as important. And he says, these three remain... Faith, hope and love and the greatest of these is love. Now how do we understand that? Faith. Well of course we are saved by faith, that's how we come to Christ. But is that where faith ends for us as Christians? Of course not. We live by faith, don't we? Isn't the Christian aware every morning they wake up that they they have that day by the grace of God? that they will succeed in that day by the grace of God, they will glorify God by the grace of God, that they are totally dependent on his grace for every moment of every day and everything they do. They live it by faith and trust in God, don't they? Is that going to stop when we get to heaven? Well, my answer would be no, definitely not. Is there a place for faith in heaven? Of course there is. Isn't it going to be the same for the whole of eternity? Isn't it going to be true that what I have that day is going to be of the grace of God? What I enjoy that day, what meets my needs that day and the next day and the next will be of the grace of God? Will it suddenly become my right in heaven? Will I have suddenly earned it? Will I have suddenly bought it? Of course not. I will be just as dependent on the grace of God then as I am now for the whole of eternity. I will still put my faith in the goodness of God towards me a sinner every day of eternity. And that will be my praise that his grace towards me is not finished. His grace towards me continues. In fact, it multiplies. Hope? What are we hoping in? We know what Paul means by hope here. It's very obvious, isn't it? We hope in our salvation in the outworking of it, in the fulfilment of it, in the fact that when I die I'm going to go and be with Christ and he's going to receive me as his child. 
a hope in an eternal inheritance with Christ. That's where my hope is. And that's a hope that will not disappoint. Now, is hope going to finish when we get to heaven? I don't think so. Do we believe that on day one we're going to have seen everything and received everything that heaven holds? Do we think that on day two there's going to be nothing new to be excited about, nothing fresh to enjoy? Do you think after a week you're going to have exhausted glory? I can't think of a less attractive heaven, to be honest. Then on the first day I've seen it all, done it all and that's it. Do you not think that for the whole of eternity you're still going to have things to look forward to? You're still going to have things to receive. You're still going to have blessings to enjoy. And isn't that going to be our hope through the whole of eternity? And love. That which we experience now so poorly from others so often and which we show so poorly to others. That which we receive now perfectly from God and yet only by faith in that sense we can't see it. But when we get to heaven is love going to finish? Oh no. When we see Jesus and we see the reality of his love for us in the nail prints in his hands when we see what it cost him to die for us when when, when when we understand when I understand perfectly what my sin was when I understand perfectly what my life has been like and I see that it is all covered by the grace of God and I understand really what it meant that Jesus Christ paid for that in his body on the cross like I can only begin to understand now I'll enjoy his love in that sense deeper than I do now won't I? the better I understand his love, the better I will experience his love. And my love for him will then be perfect. I'll never again have to come before him and ask his forgiveness. I'll never again have to come before him and admit that I've let him down. My, my love for him will be perfect in every way. But friends, my love for my brothers and sisters will be perfect then as well. My love for you I know and for the brothers and sisters I don't know will be perfect. And your love for me will be perfect as well. And your love for each other and our love for each other will be perfect. So why does he say the greatest of these is love? Can I just suggest two reasons? The first would be this. Faith and hope are very much just between me and God, aren't they? You know, I've put my faith in God and I hope in God. But love also works out to each other, doesn't it? And that's the whole point of this whole passage in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? That there should have been this love in that church that wasn't there. I suggest a second reason as well is this. Does God have faith? I don't really think so. Does God hope? No. God's doesn't need those things does he but God does love love is the very heart of God isn't it God is love says scripture and when we come to love we come to the thing that not only has a horizontal dimension to it as well as a vertical one but we come to the thing that is the very nature of God 
and reflects the heart of God. And so Paul says, but love is the greatest. Let's sing, shall we? Number 780, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond